This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Ah, you've heard our siren song once again. It's episode 227 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, luring you in with all things nerdy and going back to talking about Siren from Freeform, the mermaid show that had a huge amount of success, going to be coming back for a second season in February of 2019, but I thought it would be a good chance to go back to the press roundtables that I was at at San Diego Comic-Con. 2018 and talk about the show some really interesting insights for season two and then we'll revisit that right around january or so and talk about the show again so if you're a siren fan this is definitely the week for you if you still haven't really heard about the show and want to learn more about it but you've been intrigued definitely a lot of great info waiting for you speaking of great info i mean there's other stuff that we got to get to too how about some comics and some brand new stuff on what we're reading next on the down and nerdy podcast this is Aaron Campbell, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I can see you dragging out that long box right now. How about firing up the tablet or the laptop? Whatever you decide to read on, it's time for what we're reading. And how about something brand new from Brian Michael Bendis and the Jinx World imprint from DC Comics? It's Pearl Number 1, and this one intrigued me right away. But first, let me get to the creative team of Brian Michael Bendis, who's the writer. Michael Gatiss, who is the artist. You might remember them as the team that co-created Jessica Jones. Joshua Reed 
also doing the letters. Now, this story follows a tattoo artist named Pearl, who has a very unique tattoo on her arm that no one knows anything about. And her skin, I should point out, by the way, is absolutely pristine, except for this tattoo. Although you could argue that the tattoo is pristine, too. I'm not here to go one way or the other. I'll let you be the judge on that once you see it and see why it is unique. Now, she actually runs into somebody that recognizes it or the person's work who did it. And she kind of takes an interest in him. But, you know, as that's kind of going on, that's what the story really takes a very quick and abrupt turn. And that kind of leads Pearl on another path. Now, she might have kind of unintentionally started something very serious during this little incident. And yes, I am being very spoiler free here. And hopefully that is for your benefit. Now, things get very, very uncomfortable after this. And in her next encounter with someone who I guess you could call this person her boss or someone that she deals with. And it gets very different, very uncomfortable. But the way it was portrayed, I thought was really, really great as far as in the story is concerned. Now, we kind of find out at the end that there seems to be two sides of this story as we jump ahead. And it remains to be seen kind of which side she's going to take or how she's going to play both sides of this and something that she's been asked to do that she now feels like she has to do or maybe she doesn't. That's kind of one of the things that makes this story interesting. Now, one that she would, there's kind of one that she would choose and then another that almost appears that's calling to her. And one thing that might be a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of a spoiler that I'll, I'll point out here is this deals with the Yakuza as well, which also brings another very interesting element into the story. But I mean, when you're talking about a tattoo artist, then the art is very, very important for the story. And let me tell you right now, the art in this book is absolutely gorgeous. And I'm going to say that the Gatiss' work in in Jessica Jones, which I thought was really, really great when they had that team going. I think this might even be a step up from that. And maybe that's blasphemous for me to say, but it was just such a beautiful book from start to finish. And there's kind of so much intrigue that's created around this Pearl character in the first issue and why she's unique. That word comes up a lot in this book and that she is unique. So, and, and she's a very likable character right off the bat too. And for no particular reason other than how the story is told and how she presents herself in the story. And, and sometimes that's the hardest thing to do in the world because yeah, she has a badass moment or two in this first issue, but it's just the way that she presents herself and kind of a, her being her sort of thing that makes her an interesting character. And I think that that's a credit to the creative team. Now, they also make it seem like she's just an ordinary tattoo artist, too, though, which also creates a sense of wonder for the readers because once you see this kind of thing happen, you go, okay, whoa, where did that come from? And then that adds a whole other level of intrigue to the story. So I am all in on this. If this is what the Jinx World imprint is going to be about, and if this is what... Brian Michael Bendis is going to be doing in creating a whole new world and creating new characters for DC Comics as a whole, then I am all for this, man. This is a pull for me. Give me the second issue of this now. As a matter of fact, give me all of what Jinx World has coming. I can't wait for the next few weeks because there's a bunch more coming as well. And you can bet 
that we're going to be covering those. Another book that really ca- caught my eye, and I know this is beginning a lot of chatters from Image Comics, it's Crowded Number One, and Christopher Isabella doing the writing on this. He's kind of the hot writer right now that's kind of taken the comics industry by storm, and rightfully so. Rose Stein on the pencils, Ted Brent on the inks, Triona Farrell on the colors, and Cardinal Ray on the letters. Now, the story is following a busy woman named Charlie, and once you read the book, you'll find out why she is so busy. Now, she's got quite the campaign out against her for her death that's going to be lasting for the thir- next 30 days. I should basically, I should probably mention that the entire world basically runs on apps. And it's very time. This book is very timely because kind of that's where we're going, right? That you can get your food delivered through the app. You can, you know, get a car to pick you up. You can get somebody to walk your dog, you know, take care of your household chores, everything right there on apps, right? So, but the, basically one of the apps that is available in this world is a kind of a crowdfunding app for assassinations. But now there's also an app to have somebody defend your life. And that's what she does. Charlie hires someone named Vita to defend her and keep her safe. And there's a reason why Vita is available that I don't want to spoil because it's actually a funny moment in this book. Now, other than that, I mean, the book really goes through Charlie's day and what she might have done to piss people off to want to kill her sort of thing. And it's the beginning of establishing, you can call it a rapport or not once you read the book between Charlie and Vita. And that is one of the charming things about this book because there's really an odd couple situation going on here where you've got the where Charlie's full of personality and full of herself and then you've got Vita who hates people and just wants to do her job and move on to the next thing and just live her life how she wants to live it and it creates a very interesting dynamic and it almost makes you lose yourself in that and forget what's actually going on and what's going on in the story but then you get violently shoved back into the fact that, oh, yeah, someone's trying to kill her and this person's supposed to keep her safe. Now, there's something very enjoyable about them getting on each other's nerves throughout this story, though. And I think that that's one of the beauty parts of the storytelling in this book. But there is still a mystery that we're still left with as to why someone wants her dead. They, it kind of gets touched on a little bit, but not a ton. And... Let me tell you something about the art in this book as well. It's pretty solid, but the story really, really sells the fact that these characters are going to grab you whether you like them or not. And that is a crazy thing to be able to do. These characters are not necessarily likable, but it's either the combination of them or the story that surrounds them that makes you like them and be interested in them. And that is, I mean, a tip of the cap to Christopher Sibella. But going back to the art for a second... There's a moment where they're inside the the safe house, I guess you could call it. And this isn't really a spoiler because obviously if somebody's trying to keep you safe, they're going to take you to a safe house. And one of the things that the, that the, that the panel does is that you see the house. It's almost like there's glass walls and, and glass floors all around it. That's not how the house is made, but it gives you a vision of this entire house. It's almost like if you were in a video game and you hit the map button. And you got to see where your surroundings were, but in a 3D platform. I thought that that was a really, really neat thing to do. You kind of get the layout of the house as Vita's describing it to Charlie. And I thought that that was really, really smart. This is another pull for me. I actually really thought that I would love this book. And I definitely did. I'm interested in not only what's going to happen with the pairing of these characters, especially with how they're reacting to each other and a couple of things that happened. Again, that I won't spoil. 
And not only that, but I want to know why there's a hit out on this woman. It might seem obvious, but I really don't think it is. I think that there's more to it or more that has not been said. And it wouldn't surprise me if we find out about that sooner rather than later. But I'm really looking forward to more Crowded and also more of Pearl Number 1 from Jinx World and DC Comics as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, we're going to remain spoiler-free and talk about the first seven episodes of Netflix's Disenchantment. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to dive into a medieval world of half-ass magic and fantasy. That's right, it is Netflix's Disenchantment. The first seven episodes, got a chance to see them early. They are out now on Netflix if you want to check them out for yourself. But because I got to see them a little bit early and the show just came out, I am going to be spoiler-free in the review of these first seven episodes, so not going to reveal any deep plot details or any spoilers in this. So you are safe if you haven't gotten a chance to watch any of these episodes. Now, I will tell you about the characters, and again, this isn't really a spoiler because you know about Lucy already, and we'll get to that in a second, but this story does follow Bean, who is Princess Tia Beanie. You have Elfo, and you have Lucy. Now, Princess Tia Beanie is kind of your typical you know, princess that's rebelling against the king that doesn't want to get married for the sake of alliances. And then you have Elfo, who kind of left the home of Elf World for a search of a new life and actually to live a life. And then you've got Lucy, who is a demon that is that has possessed the princess. Now, the world that they live in is called Dreamland, which, it, I mean, that's debatable as to whether it is or it isn't, but I mean, this story really ends up being, especially after the first couple of episodes, it's sort of a typical rebellion story against a king father who's kind of a douchebag, who's kind, who's gotten remarried to a weird new wife, and with a son that is from that marriage, who, by the way, it's pointed out that this son is more significant in this story as the episode's go on and I won't tell you why because I feel like that's a little bit too much of a spoiler of future episodes and that's something that's going to unravel as the story does so I don't want to let that slip for you but this show does have a constant direction which is centered around kind of a clunky story at times to be honest now as far as the humor goes I will say that the humor definitely has its moments, and I was there were a few times where I definitely had, actually more than a few times that I had some laugh-out-loud moments, but it kind of fails to capitalize on the parody aspect of the medieval times with any consistency, and I mean, there's times where, you know, it's like they're trying to make fun of Game of Thrones, and you're trying to make fun of elf stereotypes and magic and stuff like that. Matter of fact, stereotype humor is, is definitely a part of this. There's you know, humor about Vikings and Germans and, and Southern Swamp people and stuff like that. And it kind of leans on that a little bit too much at times. If you like Futurama, though, this show definitely feels more like Futurama than The Simpsons. Of course, you've got Matt Groening, who is one of the creators of this show. So that shouldn't be any surprise. But if, I, again, I feel like it leans on the Futurama type story quite a lot but in a different angle but it, it just doesn't quite land the the parody that it's trying to be like Futurama did all of those years ago I mean there's a, and the, the other problem I really had with the show was is that there's a few things that were set up for the long term 
but then sort of disappear entirely in the first seven episodes anyway. There's no, there's no, nothing saying that in the first 10 or even first 20 episodes that this show is going to get, it's definitely going to get 20, that that won't be brought back to. But it's almost like it's not even hinted at at certain points some of these things. It's kind of either shoved to the side or it's casually dropped in there to remind you that this was still a thing from a couple of episodes ago. But it's not even really a callback at times. I know I'm being super vague here and maybe that's frustrating, but I mean, these are like straight plot points that if I give them to you, it spoils a pretty good chunk of the story. So I I can't really do that. But I mean, it's almost like the show's trying to decide between having a story that follows the entire season and then just having episodic things that sort of happen where, you know, Bean screws up and then she's got to try and fix it sort of thing. Kind of like, you know, the Simpsons would do where, where Bart makes a mistake or Homer makes a mistake or Marge. And then it's encapsulated in that episode and then it's over. Sometimes it might be an Easter egg for an episode way down the road. And it's funny for longtime devoted fans, but for really nobody else. But this show hasn't really earned that credit yet to be able to do that. And it, it tries so hard to be its own thing at times, but then it also tries a little bit too hard to be like Futurama at other times. And parody is a tricky thing because if you don't go all in with it, and maybe this show kind of, see, that's the arguable point here. There are definitely, it definitely keeps with the theme of parodying medieval times, like how child labor is a thing there and executions and hangings and stuff like that and in the in the square and all these other things now elves exist and they do something kind of funny with fairies that that's a, a part of the story so it's not like they they fail on it across the board but it's almost like the best way i could describe it is is it it seems to not know what it wants to parody for the longevity of the show it's it's almost like it loses its focus too much it's almost like the show needs autocorrect. It's like, no, 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 that's not how you're supposed to spell that word. Go back to what you were doing. You were doing fine there because that was one of the things that happened to me in a couple of episodes of the show. I'm like, all right, they're starting to get somewhere. And then it veers back off into kind of no man's land. You're going, wait a minute, we, they had a good thing going there. Why did they not just stick with that? So, I mean, there's plenty of times where it, it doesn't know whether it wants to be a long-term story that focuses on something. I mean, the, the one thing it does focus on is Bean being a screw-up and that she kind of has a de facto angel and a devil on her shoulder at all times with how she's living her life. And then you work in, you know, stuff with her dad and things like that. And it's all fine, but it just seems to me like this show could be more than it actually is. Now, granted, I've only seen the first seven episodes but, I mean, you're getting 10 episodes in this first season, so it's like you don't really want to take that long to find your footing, do you? And, I mean, the first two episodes are about one solid story, and then that kind of ends, and then you're left with everything else, which would be fine if it was a nice transition, but I almost feel like they didn't really hit that transition point very well. Now, I've kind of criticized the show quite a bit, but I will say that that I do like the characters as they stand on on their own. You, you're not going to like the king 
and certain things that he does. Princess Tiabini is a likable screw-up character, and the group dynamic I do like between she between her, Elfo, and Lucy. There is kind of a weird thing with with Elfo and Bean that I think is wasn't really necessary, and it didn't really land as funny for me. That doesn't mean it won't be funny for somebody else, and, and I get why. They did it and why they thought it would be funny, but it just didn't, it stood out as more awkward than funny for me. And it wasn't what they were trying to do. It was the way it was being presented, which was kind of weird and awkward for me. And and I don't think that they're going to let it go, although it has kind of been let go in some of the episodes. And, then, and again, there lies my frustration. You're either going to focus on something or you're not. And I, I don't think you're going to dump it because you think it's not working and keep it in the final cut. So it's all, it's not like they got fan reaction went, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should just forget about that. That's something you do in transition from season one to season two or a transition you make from an original movie to the sequel. You don't do that as you're going along because you're not getting any feedback. So I've definitely not lost hope for Disenchantment. I still think that this could be a good show, and I think it has a solid cast of characters. And there's a couple of second and third level characters that I think make some of the funny moments, like like the like the village crier guy, the guy that makes the announcements. I think is hilarious in this show, and one of the most fun, some of the most funny moments in the show are from him. And again, there are some laugh out loud moments. But I feel like there could have been more. And maybe my expectations are too high based on what I've seen from Futurama and from what I'm seeing from The Simpsons. And I know that this show can be good if it could just sit down and focus on parody of the medieval times and fantasy realm. You just focus on that. Don't worry about trying to parody anything else. Let that be your focus. And let being trying to find out who she is be your focus. And let that stand on its own. And hopefully... That's the direction this show ultimately decides to take. Since this is the first seven episodes, again, it's really tough for me to give this a rating. So if I was going to rate just the first seven episodes, I think I would give this six and a half portions of roasted Elfo out of 10. So six and a half out of 10, which I know isn't very high, but I reserve the right to revise that after I see the complete first season and even the first complete 20 episodes. So this show is available for streaming now on Netflix. Let me know what you think of Disenchantment. Am I dead wrong? Am I seeing this incorrectly? Let me know at Down and Nerdy 757. I'd love to get your opinion because hey, I mean, just because I wasn't really a huge fan of the first seven episodes, just because I was kind of lukewarm on it doesn't mean that you won't love it. And if you do, I want to know why. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Taming and my spoiler-free review of Disenchantment on Netflix. Up next, we still have some nerd news to get to, so we'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. This is Philip Kennedy Johnson, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you're looking for a little bit of willpower, we have it for you because it's time for nerd news, and I could not let the week go by without talking about this. 
multiple reports, which apparently originated from a site called Crazy Days and Nights from the rumor mill that says that Tom Cruise is the front runner and may actually play Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern Corps movie. Now, I don't normally address rumors like this, and I'm not sure if this will ever happen. I guess the, the report is, and maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler for potential script for Green Lantern Corps. If you don't want to know, fast forward about 30 seconds. Apparently, the report is, is that Hal Jordan was supposed to be killed off in the Green Lantern Corps movie, and Tom Cruise said, nope, I won't take the role if that's the case. So you either change the script or I'm out. So time will only tell if that's true or if that's actually going to happen. But the internet has had some very, very interesting reactions to this. Now, first of all, it, it's he, easy to forget that Tom Cruise was almost Iron Man before Robert Downey Jr. was the choice. And I definitely think the right choice was made there. I almost can't picture anyone else as Iron Man but Robert Downey Jr. at this point. But, I mean, why do we simply just brush this off or get so upset about it? It's He's a proven moneymaker, for one. I mean, look at what Mission Impossible Fallout just did and what the Mission Impossible movies continue to do. I mean, he certainly has that cocky, confident air about him and the chops to play Hal Jordan. Yeah, he's short and he's not bulky, but does Hal Jordan absolutely have to be that way and you know they're gonna cg him when he's in his suit anyway so i don't understand what the huge deal is about that and it, it's like everyone's forgotten that tom cruise has been in some major movies and yes he can act yeah he you know you can make the argument that he went a little crazy there for a while but now he's he's back in hollywood it seems like full time he seems more focused than he has been in years, so I don't understand. I'm not saying he's the perfect choice. I'm not even saying he's who I would choose, but I don't understand what the big anger is about this. I mean, and they went with an older Batman with Ben Affleck, so why not a little bit of an older Hal Jordan as well? What's stopping them from doing that? So I just don't understand what all the anger is about this. And maybe you're looking at the source saying crazy days and nights. Really, that's what that's what we're basing this on as a rumor from them. Hey, I don't know them. I don't know how credible this rumor could be and where they got their information. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just going to say that, you know, everyone's picked up the story and I'm going to talk about it because I think it's interesting. And, and, and again, I don't think this would be the worst thing in the world. And it is Green Lantern Corps. So it's not like there aren't going to be other actors around him playing other Green Lanterns like Jon Stewart, maybe Kyle Rayner, maybe Guy Garner. It's not like Tom Cruise is going to be in this movie by himself. This is not going to be a solo Hal Jordan movie. So I think we've got to relax on this a little bit, especially wait for it to actually happen before you potentially get upset about it. But I don't see what the big deal would be if he actually did get cast. I think he would actually be able to pull it off. But again, only time will tell. It could be a spectacular failure, too, whether Tom Cruise is in it or not. Who knows? Speaking of casting, this is one that we definitely know for sure is happening, and that is that Spock has finally been cast for Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery. And the Hollywood Reporter, who I believe was the first to report this, says Ethan Peck will play the role. And showrunner Alex Kurtzman actually had some, something very interesting to say when the casting announcement was made, says he will bring his, quote, bring his own interpretation to the role. Kurtzman was talking about how Zachary Quinto did that, and then when Leonard Nimoy was originally cast, how Leonard Nimoy did that and brought, you know, some emotion to a character and some humanization to a character that is not 
fully human. So, again, this is one of those things where there were some mixed reactions. Spock is one of those characters that I understand why Spock is held dear. I understand that, you know, you're leery of any casting of a character that is as iconic as Spock. But, I mean, we hold on to these characters so much to the point where, you know, some fans act like they're untouchable. And maybe Spock should not come back. Maybe there's an argument to be made there. But they've already set this up in season one of Star Trek Discovery. So if you were going to be upset about it, you need to be upset about it then and choose whether or not you want to continue watching Discovery based on that in the first season. So it's not like this is a huge surprise that this is coming. So, again, I'm not sure where the anger lies here. It's not like Ethan Peck has has anything on his resume that shows that he can't play Spock. On the flip side, you could say there's nothing that says that he necessarily could either. There's really no major acting credits to to his resume. Nothing huge. I mean, he's done a lot, but there's nothing huge... And there's nothing really directly relatable, if if I'm being honest. But he does have that Zachary Quinto type look. So, I mean, he's definitely got that going for him for sure. Not that that even really matters. But Leonard Nimoy's family has already come out and said, hey, they have no problem with Spock coming back. They've welcomed Ethan Peck into the Star Trek fold. Didn't necessarily give their blessing, per se, but said that they're okay with this. They're okay with Spock being back. And remember, Spock is part of this timeline, again, and is... Michael Burnham's foster brother. So, well, well, she's his foster sister, I guess is the better way to put it. So, I mean, it's either going to work or it isn't. And may will this make Star Trek Discovery sink or swim on CBS All Access in the, in the second season? I don't know. I guess it depends on how important of a role Spock is really going to be playing in this second season. I mean, it's very, very interesting because, you know, you've got... You've got Pike is back, and Anson Mount is going to play that role, and I think that might be that might play a bigger role in this upcoming season. But again, I think a lot of this too could be based on how well Peck does as Spock, and that could you know kind of expand the role a little bit. Obviously, as shooting goes on, maybe you say, "Hey, this is actually working out really well. Let's do more of this," or or not, because. You have these ideas, but you're also very fluid when it comes to how these things are put together. And if it seems like it's working, they're going to do more of it. So, again, only time will tell. We haven't seen him in a trailer. We haven't heard word one from Ethan Peck as Spock. So, again, this is one of those things where I think we've got to pump the brakes and hold on a little bit and wait till we actually see or hear something for the first time before we give an opinion one way or the other. And, and hey, Ethan Peck has, has has a good chance to really do this. I, I, I just have a good feeling about this casting. I hope I'm right about this one. Here's something that makes perfect sense based on something that came out in the news from USA Network this week. Treadstone, a series that is set in the Jason Bourne universe, has been ordered right to series, which means it doesn't have to go through the pilot approval or anything like that. It is going to be a series on USA Network. Now, Treadstone does explore this right from the release from NBC Universal and Cable and Universal Cable Productions. It says that Treadstone explores the origin story and present day actions of CIA black ops program known as Treadstone, a covert operation that used behavior modification protocol to turn its agents into nearly unstoppable superhuman assassins. Of course, you know the Jason Bourne movies 
and you know how that story has unfolded so far. And this is going to follow some new sleeper agents we're going to see. We know that that has definitely been expanded. We found out that Jason Bourne wasn't the only one throughout the telling of the story. And, you know, how they're, quote, awakened, that's part of this as well. Now, if you're wondering who's going to be writing this, it's actually going to be Tim Kring who was involved in Heroes, the original Heroes, not Heroes Reborn. So take that for what it's worth. And he will serve as writer and executive producer. So, and we just found out that Shooter was canceled by USA Network. And because the shows aren't exactly the same, but kind of relatable, Maybe this explains that away and find and you find out, well, well, USA Network says we don't really need this if we're going to have this and we think this might be better. Anyway, so that's why you bumped that show. I mean, the one thing that gives me pause about this is that you saw what happened the last time they tried to do a Jason Bourne story without Matt Damon. And that didn't work out too well. No disrespect to Jeremy Renner. I actually kind of liked Bourne Legacy. Obviously, I didn't think it was up to par with the other Bourne movies that Matt Damon was in, but I still kind of liked it, and I don't think Jeremy Renner did a bad job. But it, but again, it just shows that the, the franchise was vulnerable without its stars. So you better have a really good story in order to make sure you capture people's attention. Or maybe it'll be different on TV. Maybe this just works better on television at this point, especially if you're going to be introducing new characters and new sleeper agents, which I actually think... Again, how many times have I said on the show, just introduce a new character. Don't reboot the old one or try and drag them onto television, play it by a different actor. No, just create new characters and sink or swim based on that. Let that be what pushes you forward. And that's what they're doing. So, and it'll either work or it won't because there's a thousand different shows waiting to replace it, I'm sure, because TV is exploding right now. So, I'm just interested to see how. How many agents we're going to get? Is it going to be a couple? Or are we going to see several over the course of a season? And what is you know what are the antagonists here? Is it going to be serialized or not? I think that there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. But, I mean, as a Bourne fan, I'm going to check this out regardless. So I don't know where you're at with that. One more thing before we move on. What the hell is going on? At IDW Publishing, yet another exit. This time, it's President David Ozer, who's leaving the company to pursue independent producer opportunities. Now, this is what, the fourth major exit in five months at IDW? And these are big names that are leaving the company and and names that had been with the company for a while. So, I mean, if you're you're with IDW, you got to be wondering, okay... What's going on here? And you know, you don't necessarily leave a job if you're super stoked with where you're working. You know what I mean? I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. And, and I, I, I've known some people that have worked with IDW and have had nothing but good things to say. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with IDW at all. I've had nothing but good experiences personally with the folks at IDW. I love IDW. But at the same time, if you're looking at this from the outside looking in, you've got to think, you know, you don't necessarily leave your job if you're happy there and or you're being paid well. And I don't know what anybody was getting paid. I don't think that that's played a factor in any of this, not the impressions that I've gotten from the stories that have come out. So it's just very weird that this all seems to be happening in such a short period of time. And then there's this, and I'm going to be really careful about this one. Bleeding Cool is reporting 
that IDW president and publisher Greg Goldstein has hired Lisa Bloom. If that name sounds familiar, Lisa Bloom's been part of a lot of the high-profile media sexual harassment cases, and her firm has, to defend against possible sexual harassment allegations. And, and, me, and, and the Me Too movement might be involved here as well. Now, I'm not saying that any of the previous departures have anything to do with this, and IDW said no comment on this up to this point. I'm certainly not going to be somebody that comments on an ongoing legal investigation or court case or anything like that. But if this does come to fruition and this does end up being the case and this is something that pops up on the radar at some point, it might explain some of the turmoil within IDW and some people wanting to leave the company. Again, I'm not saying that this has anything to do with it or that this is even a thing. This is just something that's being reported by Bleeding Cool that has not been commented on by IDW. But it's one of those things where if you think the boat might be rocking and you have a chance to get off before it sinks, you're going to do that. So there's a possibility that several of these names thought, okay, and I'm in even though they probably didn't do anything wrong, thought, I better get out of here before this starts to get ugly. Now, I, by no means do I think that this, could def, that this could sink the ship at IDW. I think the company has a lot going on. There's a lot of great people that work with IDW. They put in, out an amazing product. And if something really, and some, if something's going on that shouldn't be, the, the higher-ups at IDW will handle this and it will be dealt with because that's the kind of company that IDW is, in my experience. But again, if this comes out to be true and this does end up being a story, I just think it would explain a lot. And it's not to say that there aren't some great people that have come to IDW since these departures as well. I mean, John Barber is a perfect example coming back as editor-in-chief. So, I, I mean, it's not like they've got scrubs working at IDW. It's, an, it's a great company. They put out great books and great products. So... It's just something to keep our eye on because if more of these exits start to come, I mean, four and five months is a lot for top positions. So if this keeps on happening, I will have my caution caution bulb lit from IDW. And this is an opportunity for other companies that aren't quite at IDW's level to kind of catch up to where they are a little bit too. You have to keep that in mind. And it's just, it's very interesting and very intriguing to me. And that's the reason I wanted to bring it up. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, we're going to take a very, very early look at Season 2 of Siren on Freeform. I'm going to talk to the cast and producers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is William Powell from Siren on Freeform, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So this week, we thought we'd take a trip to Bristol Cove and see what's going on for Season 2 of Siren on Freeform. I know it's not going to be premiering until February of 2019. But, you know, I got a chance to sit down with the cast and the producers at San Diego Comic-Con 2018, and I'm like, I can't hold on to this until February. So let's give you a little bit of a preview now. As a matter of fact, let's start with Emily Weitzel and Eric Wald, who are the executive producers of Siren. And the first question that was asked was, what will we learn about the Siren song going into season two? It's a huge part of our mythology, and obviously we left off in a place... Um, 
where Ben is very deeply affected having been Siren. So there's a kind of a lot of stuff to unravel from that and how he's going to deal with it and how it starts to evolve. I mean, like, they're going to, we're going to learn more about how the Siren song works and there might be some others that uh, get exposed to it. As well. And so, as we know, it's, it's there, you know, it can affect people in different ways. So there's the negative Siren song and the more loving positive Siren song. So we'll play with both those things as well. And also we're going to explore what it means to the mermaids when they sing it, how it feels for them, how they experience it. Next up, you knew this had to be asked, what new characters can we expect in season two and how will they fit into the existing story? Yeah, I think the most obvious at the end of the last episode with that phone call from Maddie's mother, that's definitely a character that's going to come into it and sort of create a lot of conflict for Maddie and the other characters. Um, and then, like we said on the panel, there will be more that are coming onto land. And it's really going to allow us to to get into a lot of the uh, mermaid mythology, sort of how their life is like socially in the sea, uh, really to dig into a lot of that, how they, what they, what they learn as they're on land, how they have more time to spend on land. I think it's just a lot of chances to really dig into that in an interesting way. Next up, I get a chance to ask Emily and Eric, will we get to learn any more about Ben's family and their history as well coming up? I feel like we kind of barely scratched the surface okay. in season one of Ben and his family and that history. We're going to get a little bit more of that in season two as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that definitely tight. We love that dynamic, yeah, first of all, do. and that, that conflict with his father, and that yep. his father sort of represents, you know, this side of the town that maybe is at odds with the mermaids. Um, and so we definitely have a lot of story we're building that's going to involve Ted okay. and Ben. And also, um, Helen plays into it a little bit, too, with some of the family history. So all of that will start to come out very slowly again, because we don't want to just unpack the whole story quickly. But definitely digging into that in the next it's a small town, so there's like a lot of history and a lot of like crosses that happen in unexpected ways. You know? Another question that seems obvious if you were a fan of Siren last season, Emily and Eric were asked, where is Ben and Maddie's relationship heading into season two? Ben's got a lot to deal with and they need to they need to repair that relationship. And, and, you know, we do ultimately want them to be together, but it's going to evolve in a way that that's different from, from season one, you know. Um, they, uh, we'll see Ben sort of taking steps to deal with his addiction early on, and, um, you know, we definitely want, like, that's a relationship that's important to us. But also, and it's another aspect of that, even that relationship that I think we like to tell, which is that it doesn't have to be this traditional, oh, we had a big fight over something that's complicated, right. we're breaking up, and now we need to find new love interests. And I think we always want to tell it in the most complicated way, that the love is clearly there. So how are they going to get through this? What are they going to do about it? And who else is going to play into it? And so I think if we approach it that way, it, it could be more interesting than our traditional breakup, come together, love triangle, whatever else. They're also the keepers of this huge secret. And we sort of feel like the strength of this relationship is really important for our larger mermaid story. Because they're, they're the ones who can manage the situation properly. And there's sort of all these other forces that are threatening to either expose the mermaids or it could get really bad. And we feel like Ben, Maddie, and Rin together are the ones that can kind of save this situation. So that relationship is critical. Which can also be 
a twist in the story of Maddie's mom coming to town as well, which is that she and her dad have a big secret, and how's her, you know, her mom's going to feel on the outside of that, so how's that going to play into their dynamic? Next up, it was the cast, chance to sit down in the Siren Press Room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018, and first to sit down, actually, was Fola Evans Akingbola, and I got a chance to ask her right off the bat, how much will we learn about Maddie's family now that it looks like her mom might be joining in on the dynamic? How much are we going to learn about your family and your mom possibly coming into play at some point in season two? Yeah, I think a lot more. I think that's going to be a big storyline for Maddie. I think in season one, you definitely got to learn about her in relation to, uh, I guess, the men in her life, you know, her dad and her boyfriend, which is fine. She loves them a lot. But in season two, I think we're going to see how she is as a woman independently but also as you say that family dynamic her mum coming back which is going to be a painful dynamic for her to deal with so she's got kind of a lot that she's juggling and trying to work out so I think this is going to be interesting yeah so then as we were chatting Aline Powell who plays Ren and of course Alex Rowe who plays Ben sat down as well so I mean who better to ask about Maddie and Ben's relationship than the actors themselves. I, I'm rooting for them. Yeah, me too. I really want them to be able to grow from the difficulty, you know, rather than necessarily crumble from it. Yeah, I think uh, the first thing that you need to do is realize that you've got a problem. Yeah. I think that Ben has now realized that he's got a problem. I think, uh, I think he has been doing his best to act uh, to do the right thing um, but I think he needs to he's had to start questioning himself a little more uh, and I think that he needs to try and figure that out you know? <laughs> what, and I think that's interesting I've never really seen that before like someone having to deal with the effect of someone else's superpower it's usually like how the superhero uh, uses their superpower but like Ben is affected in this way interesting to explore that side of it. You might have heard the word addiction come up from Eric Wald in the earlier conversation, so I was asking Alex, is dealing with the siren song going to be treated like an addiction, as was mentioned earlier? It's funny because when Eric was here, he actually used the word addiction. Would you kind of liken it to that? Is that how the angle is going to come out? Yeah, I think that's definitely an idea that has been floating around. I think it's so ambiguous and like keeping its ambiguity through season one was important. But I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it is an addiction. Uh, I also think that, yeah, it's having, and it's just having an effect that he can't control. And I think addiction definitely is that. And finally, you could not ask about the love triangle that's going on. So someone did ask, how will the love triangle be explored and why might we actually see an open relationship on the show at some point between Maddie, Rin and Ben? I think it'd be very interesting to see because I I don't actually know how it would work. Um, I can't quite imagine it, so maybe it is a, a, a fantastic way to explore that. To explore that. Um, I think maybe because Rin is mermaid and for her things are so different. Um, in the way she shares and gives love. Maybe it is a bit more flexible of a model than perhaps if we were in 
a very realistic TV show with, you know. I only know like one, I know, in my real life I know of a couple that is a three. Yeah. And for a while it worked for them, so. I think throwing a mermaid into the mix of that trio does <laughs> kind of uh, switch it up. If you're a fan of Siren like I am, it's really good to get an early feel of what we're going to expect in season two, it looks like season two will actually deal with an addiction aspect a little bit with Ben. And then we're also going to find out more about the siren song. Why does it affect different people in different ways? And are different siren songs for different mermaids going to affect different people in different ways? And the integration into how humans and mermaids are going to deal with each other kind of got a little bit of that in season one. Looks like we'll find out more about that of humans and mermaids and how they interact with each other. And I think that that's really neat. And it looks like we're going to see season two of Siren on Freeform premiering once again February 9th of 2019. This is not the last time that we will talk about Siren by a long shot. Going to catch you up a lot closer to the season two premiere. Maybe even have some more interviews as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I want to thank the cast and the producers of Siren on Freeform for letting me join them at San Diego Comic-Con this past year and chat a little bit about Season 2. If you want to find our interview with Aline Powell before Season 1, actually, you can find that at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, whatever you, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can subscribe there, scroll down, and find my interview with Aline Powell for even more Siren stuff from before season one. You can also find out more about our past shows at downandnerdypodcast.com. See our articles up there and follow us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.